This summer, Coors Light wants you to retire, even if it's only temporary. Take a break from your nine to five for nine holes of golf. Trade those spreadsheets for a bingo card. Or swap your office chair for a water aerobics floaty. This summer, welcome to temporary retirement. Coors Light, made to chill. Copyright 2023, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Gonzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Gonzano's Bald Face Truth. A little bit of a wonky day as it uh, as it pertains to news and college football. And, man, we have so much to talk about with the football games that are coming up this weekend with Oregon and Washington playing a rivalry game that I think a lot of people are going to be interested in. Washington, a home favorite in this game. The trend? Is it your friend or your foe? Well, it depends if you're rooting for the Ducks or the Huskies on Saturday in a big game that's going to have all of the spotlight of America on it. The trend? Home favorites in the Pac-12 are 27-1 when it comes to winning the game outright. One loss. That's what Oregon's up against as it travels to Husky Stadium. Can it become the second team to knock out a Pac-12 home favorite? Or will the trend hold up? We'll talk about it all week long with great guests on the show. John Wilner of the San Jose Mercury News will be joining us to frame the festivities. And how about the other game? Oh, yeah. Oregon State at home against UCLA in a sneaky good matchup that will give one of those programs an opportunity to stay close to a berth to the Pac-12 championship game and give the other program probably a backseat as the home stretch of the Pac-12 football season unfolds. Amid all that legal wrangling, did you catch the news today? A couple of newsy things on the Pac-2 front. Today, attorneys for the University of Washington entered a motion to dismiss the lawsuit filed by Oregon State and Washington State. This is in Whitman County Superior Court, little town of Colfax, which Judge Leiby, our favorite judge, our favorite character, uh, presiding. Uh, nine of the other soon-to-be-departed Pac-12 schools uh, also filed a brief in, in the court arguing that they agree that the lawsuit should be tossed. Uh, anybody else ready for some old-fashioned discovery? I mean, I am. I mean, that's where all of this this is trying to, like all the wrangling today, trying to avoid discovery, right? Beavers, cougars would like to know what was talked about, who said it, who were you talking to, what was going on behind the scenes, were plans made. I think Oregon State and Washington State are very interested in getting some transparency from the 10 departing schools. And the motion today, obviously... Not in the best interest of that. The motion is, uh, I read through it, I'm not a legal expert, but it was largely centered on the procedural matters of the court and jurisdiction and you know, trying to determine uh, sovereign immunity and all that kind of language was used in the motion to dismiss. It wasn't really about the merits of the case. Like Nobody's arguing that 10 schools have told the world that they're leaving the conference. 
And they're going to compete in conferences, oh, by the way. And so I think Oregon State and Washington State are very uncomfortable with the idea that these 10 departing members would be pretending to act in the best interest of the Pac-12 because they're no longer going to be in the Pac-12. Um, I sure would like to know what the 10 schools were saying to each other. What were they saying to the consulting firms? What were they saying to potential TV partners in the last 14 months? I, I think Oregon State and Washington State are pretty interested in that stuff as well. Lack of transparency, obviously. Preliminary injunction hearing scheduled for November 14th. Uh, Oregon State and Washington State appear to want to get to November 14th and let the process play out with discovery. They like control of the conference assets. They like governance. And the attorneys for Washington are asking for an October 25th hearing to determine if the case should be dismissed. Uh, for those of you interested in that, there you have it. I'm not sure how into it you are, but I'll tell you this. I'm here for the discovery. I would love to know. As the presidents of those respective schools were telling me, hey, we are uh, galvanized. Hey, we are uh, all on board with this. Hey, uh, we're unified. Hey, we want to see a deal done. I want to know if some of those schools were also whispering behind everybody's back to the Big Ten Conference or the Big 12 Conference or Fox or ESPN. What were they saying? When were they saying it? And, uh, you know, when did uh, they make the arrangements to leave the conference? I think we'd learn some things in Discovery, and I think what we're watching now is a tug-of-war over whether or not all this stuff will eventually come out. How into the legal stuff are you? Stephen, be real with me. Speak for the audience. How into this are you versus, you know, hey, there's a college football season. Kanzano, start talking about the games. Um, I, I would say on a scale of 1 to 10, it's about a 4.5 right now. Uh, because th- there are so many good games, and the Pac-12 has been so good on the field that that's what I'm more concerned about. I think the most concerned thing I am is what happens just to Washington State, Oregon State. Like the legal stuff, that's fine, that's dandy. You know, it- it's it's cool that they're all you know suing each other, all getting mad. But at the end of the day, John, I just kind of want to know where's Oregon State, Washington State going to end, and then we can kind of just go back to saying, okay, well, this is where they're going to go. This is what they're going to do. How do they do it? How do they compete against these other teams? And then right now, of course, on the field, like I said, it's just so good. Like, you know, it, this stuff was fine in the summer. I was cool with it. I was in with to it because I wanted to see what happened. It was so unknown. But now that we kind of know these teams are heading to the Big 12, these teams are heading to the Big 10, I just want to know the finality of it. I want to know where's Oregon State, Washington yeah. State going, and then I want to know, you know what happens in the field. Here's what, I, here's what I know on that front. I started really drilling down on this on Friday after the show. Uh, you know, I was going to Berkeley to see Oregon State play against Cal, but I also w- started reaching back out to people at the Mountain West Conference, people uh, at the Big 12, some consulting firms that are involved, attorneys that are involved, and, of course, sources at Washington State and Oregon State. And I got uh, what I think is a clearer picture of what is going to happen with the Pac-2, at least the framework for what's going to happen with the Pac-2. You have this lawsuit that's ongoing. Of course, that's going to cloud everything, and the, the waters will be a little muddy, but that's going on, you know, let's just put it out in right field. Lawsuit is going on in right field. It's going to play itself out. We'll find out if Oregon State and Washington State end up with all the assets and the governance of the conference, or, uh, or, or does the conference get dissolved, or is this like years of legal fight before any of this uh, gets settled? While that is going on, I was told by multiple sources that there are a variety of options and here they are for the Pac-2, Washington State and Oregon State. Option one, which isn't necessarily the primary option, but it is a option, I'm told. I, I, I asked Oregon State and Washington State, am I out 
so to speak, in left field. If I am talking about a potential Pac-2 season in 2024, that you play as a two, and I was told, no, that's not in left field, it is a scenario. And they have, in fact, consulted with Dave Brown, the scheduling mastermind that I've written about and talked about. They've asked him to model how they could put together a 12-game schedule. They both had three non-conference opponents already. So really it's just finding nine games for these two teams to play. And uh, Dave Brown has done that, and apparently he's done it without a bunch of trouble. Like it's not impossible for them to play as a two. So that is one scenario. A second scenario that has emerged is, let's just say, a scheduling partnership. It would be a partnership for one year between the Mountain West Conference and Washington State, Oregon State, that would allow them to play as pseudo-temporary one-year conference members. This uh, scheduling partnership would include them playing nine games seemingly in the Mountain West Conference against opponents there, and it would just be seen as a stopgap so that Oregon State and Washington State could play that schedule, have the opponents, but not officially merge with the Mountain West and then determine what they really want to do in a year. I'm told that could also apply to men's basketball and some other sports, so it would uh, you know, not be all-encompassing, but it, it would help out in a number of ways just to say, hey, we're going to do a scheduling partnership. It's, uh, it's not unusual. You've seen it in other sports. There are some Big West teams that play in the Big West in basketball that don't participate in other sports. They have a scheduling partnership with the Big West Conference. So that could happen. Uh, third scenario would be a full-blown reverse merger for Oregon State and Washington State. And under the Pac-12 banner, that you know you would just see Oregon State, Washington State stay, and then you know Boise State, Fresno State, UNLV, Colorado State, full-blown merger. It becomes the Pac-12. Who knows how many teams it has, but it includes Oregon State, Washington State, and whoever else uh, you know merges in a reverse manner. Now, when will this all play out? Those are the scenarios because the Big 12 Conference. I guess that would be scenario four for the Oregon State, Washington State contingent to go. Hey, let's go to the Big 12, or let's go to the ACC, or let's go to the Big 10. Uh, the, nobody's inviting right now, and it's unlikely for 2024. It, I was kind of waved off when I asked that. Hey, for 2024, could you join the Big 12 Conference? I was waved off. I was told, you know, that's, yeah, out there. It's con- everybody wants to have those conversations, but it's not something that is likely to happen. So just file that away as, you know, it's on the horizon. Because the real thing is, Oregon State Washington State want to win a bunch of football games in 2024, and in 2025 probably, stay relevant, look like they're Power 5 members, and then when more realignment happens, be positioned to be part of it rather than to be left out. And I, do, I think it would be really hard to argue against Oregon State, Washington State, joining the Big 12 or joining the ACC or the Big 10 or whatever it looks like in two years when you start to see more movement again. And, and at that point, I think, you know, if you have been – a team that has won 10 or 11 games a season that is ranked highly in the college football playoff rankings, I think you'd be a pretty attractive candidate. So that would be like Oregon State, Washington State betting on themselves and just saying, hey, we're going to do this. And Now, what is the timeline for making this decision if those are the four options that I've laid out? Well, the timeline for making the decisions, I'm told, is going to be tied to the transfer portal. And I hadn't thought of that, and I'm kicking myself for not thinking of it because if you think about it, but Oregon State and Washington State want to be able to tell their football players when the football portal opens 
They want to be able to say, hey, this is where we're playing next year. They don't want that uncertainty hanging out over their heads. And so I was told that, you know, look at the new windows that were set up a week ago. Last week, the uh, NCAA Council, the Division One Council, set the transfer portal windows. So for, like, football, the transfer portal window is a 30-day window, the first window that opens on the Monday after the conference championship games. That's December 1st in the case of the Pac-12. It's a Friday game in Vegas. And so on December 4th, the transfer portal opens. And what you don't want if you're Oregon State and Washington State is you don't want uncertainty when the portal window opens. And so I'm being told that the athletes at Oregon State and Washington State will be told in front of that window opening on December 4th, they'll be told everything that they need to know about what conference the Beavers and the Cougars will be playing in for 2024, what the plan is. That will be shared with them. There will be nothing left uh, uncertain. And it will go sport by sport, I'm told. So the basketball window opens, you know, right after, uh, you know, March Madness is Selection Sunday. So it's the following Monday after Selection Sunday, the portal window for basketball opens. And so same thing will happen. The athletes in the Pac-12, the basketball players, will be informed before March Madness kicks off of what the plan is for Oregon State and Washington State. So those are kind of the framework dates and if you're playing like baseball or softball or volleyball, same thing. Wherever your portal window opens, that's when Oregon State and Washington State are aiming to have the answer. So they don't want to lose athletes who are going, hey, wait a minute, you don't have a plan? What conference are you going to be playing in? All of that stuff. But, I, I, you know, I think it's got to be really frustrating for coaches who are trying to recruit right now, and I think the sooner the better. If you're like in the in case of Jonathan Smith or your, your Washington State coach Jake Dickert, like – you got to kind of be going, hey, this is uh, you know, not our best. This is not our best look to not be able to tell athletes where we're going to be playing. But I also, you know, as I talk to those coaches, they're telling me like, "Hey, it wasn't like, you know, they're in the running for like a bunch of five-star guys that are headed to Alabama or Oregon or Ohio State. Like, you know, those are not the recruiting battles that Washington State and Oregon State are routinely in, even when they're in the same conference." They are largely recruiting three- and four-star guys, and they are selling growth like Utah is and selling the idea that you're going to develop. And so maybe that is a less important discussion to a three- or four-star kid who's saying, hey, can I come be part of your program? Can I develop and grow and become an NFL player? Am I going to get playing time? It's a different discussion then maybe the five-star kid is going to Ohio State and Alabama because I think you'd absolutely get killed in recruiting right now if you were Ohio State and Alabama and you didn't know where you're going to play in 2024. So for Washington State and Oregon State, maybe it doesn't matter quite as much, but damn, it still matters. They still need to know where they're playing. Does that make sense, Stephen? Makes ton sense. And you know, I I agree with you that it doesn't make as you know, it would be more of a problem if this was Oregon and they were in this situation and they're trying to figure out where they're going next year, the year after, because of the size of the recruit. But I still think it matters to retaining a lot of the players at these Oregon State and Washington State programs. Because, you know, a lot of these people and athletes that went there, they went there because they wanted to play in the Pac-12. You know, maybe they were around from the West Coast, and they've always been watching the Pac-12. And now that that conference is gone, I think if you can sell them on, you know what, this is the goal in a couple years, we're trying to get back to these Power 5 conferences, Power 4 conferences, I think you can sell them on that, but you need, you're going to have to do a little bit of a sell job. It's going to be a lot, you know, 
The transfer portal has made it so recruiting is all year. And it's not only recruiting new players, it's recruiting your own players. And so I do think there's the more clarity the better chance that these programs have to, you know, sustaining all the success they've had, especially on the football field. Now, let's talk a little bit about these football games coming up, and I'll dive deeper into this other stuff later. Oregon-Washington is a huge game, but where does Oregon State-UCLA fall on sort of the arc of the weekend as, you know, one of these games is going to be happening at 1230 Big-time audience, college football game day. The other one's happening on Fox a little bit later in the day. It's like Oregon State and Oregon, the Pacific Northwest, has got the market cornered on linear television and these two huge matchups. Stephen, where does the Oregon State-UCLA game fall when you sort of line it up against Washington and Oregon? I mean, it's behind that game, but not by a lot, right? And I think because of the way UCLA played. Now, you know they beat Washington State, and it was – you know, somewhat close on the scoreboard, but if you watch that game, you dig into the stats, you really dominated, dominated that game. And so then you take into account the way that Oregon State performed against Washington State. Is UCLA just going to be a really better team than Oregon State? I, I don't know. I don't think so. But I'm very intrigued with that matchup because you're right. You talked about it a little bit at the start. Both these teams only have one loss in the conference. And I think if we've learned anything in the history of the Pac-12, they are going to beat each other up and cannibalize itself. But the good thing is is they have such a good reputation this year that you can still get into the college football playoff with a loss. But I think you can get in the Pac-12 title game with a loss as well. So it's not a loser-is-out, per se, match or uh, contest on Saturday between those two teams, but it kind of is at the same time. Like, if you lose, you get two losses in the conferences early on. It's going to be tough to get back in that race. So I tell you what, John, like, I'm excited to watch Oregon-Washington. I am almost, I would say, almost equally as excited to watch UCLA and Oregon State. All right, so the trend being your friend or your foe, Pac-12 home favorites this season, 27-1, and as I mentioned. The only loss was Stanford. They were six-and-a-half-point favorite at home against Sacramento State in Week 3. They lost the game. That is the only blemish on the Pac-12's home favorite record. So if you are a favored team playing at home in the Pac-12, you're winning 27 of the 28 games. UCLA is going to be an underdog going to Corvallis to play Oregon State. Oregon's an underdog going to Husky Stadium to play Washington. Which of the two dogs has a better chance to win on the road and break that streak? Um, I would love to get your lead on this as well after my answer. I think for me right now, I think it is Oregon to beat Washington. And I've been on the Washington bandwagon all season long. I've said at the start of the year, I think they're the best team in the conference. But... Even though Oregon has been tested at Texas Tech, the schedule has been you know, somewhat soft this season. But what I've seen on defense, what I've heard from the coaching staff, what I've heard from the players, I think this defense might be legitimately really good for the Oregon Ducks this season. And I think that they can go up on the road and they can beat Washington because Washington's defense, on the other hand, they've given up a lot of yards to a lot of different teams. I don't trust that that Washington defense can you know, keep Oregon off the field. I think Oregon can make just enough plays to beat Washington more likely than UCLA can go down to Reeser and beat Oregon State because, John, I've seen Oregon State down at Reeser Stadium. That place is just different. And, you know, Husky Stadium is one of the best uh, home field advantages in the conference. Oregon State, Reeser Stadium might be the best home field advantage. So I think I trust Oregon State just slightly more at home than I do Washington. But it's close. I, um, you know, I could see either one, but I think I would right now I'd, I'd lean the Ducks getting an upset over Washington. UCLA has looked really good, and they looked really good in 
and made Washington State look ordinary on Saturday. I was surprised at how in control UCLA was, even though the score wasn't wild. That like I felt UCLA could have won that game 45-17. It had that feel to it. Even Washington State, you know, they got you know they got a pick six and still really struggled in that game. But I agree with you that the home field advantage in the Pac-12. I I've said this for a couple weeks. It's it's bigger than three points. It might be somewhere between six and nine points as a home field advantage. And so I I think if this game were played at a neutral site, UCLA wins it nine out of ten times. But I'll be I'll go with you here. I think at Research Stadium, Oregon State will rise to the moment like they did against Utah, like they did against Oregon last year. It's just what they do. Their only loss in their last 15 home games was a three-point loss to USC in which Chance Nolan threw three interceptions, and, you know, they they still almost won the damn game. I mean, they're just – they're really good at Research Stadium. I, I wouldn't want to play Oregon State at Research Stadium in checkers, in chess, in lawn darts. It doesn't matter. They win there. And, and, and I- I was going to say, and I look at this, I look at Dante Moore, his first performance on the road, at, or, you know, big pack performance on the road at Utah, UCLA scored seven points. Now, I'm not saying Oregon State's going to shut them down, but I think that's a that's a point you can look at and say, okay, freshman correct makes mistakes on the road. They made mistakes against Washington State on offense. So, Oregon State's going to make some plays on the defensive side. Do I trust a freshman going into Research Stadium and win? I just don't right now. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I, I'm a little more skeptical of you with Oregon going to Washington for the same reason, though. And it's why I, I right now, if I had to pick the game on Monday, I'd pick both home teams. I just I Michael Penix Jr. Washington at home. I don't know. I don't, I, and I'm not ready to make my official pick. So if you're an Oregon fan, don't give up on me yet. Like I'm, I'm just starting to look at that game. I'm looking at injuries. I'm looking at who's, you know, who's been playing well, who's coming back. I'm looking at the bye week, trying to figure out which of these teams benefited more from the bye week. And uh, the first thing I always do, too, is I look at, you know, who did you play and how did you play against them? And I think both of these teams, you can make an argument that Oregon suited up against Hawaii and Portland State. Those games didn't tell us very much about Oregon. And the Texas Tech game told us a lot. And I think Oregon's obviously talented on the offensive side of the ball. They might be really good defensively. I'm not ready to make a pick yet. But I lean both home teams in this just because of the home fields. And and I, I, I also think if one of these games has the propensity to be a blowout, I think it's the Washington-Oregon game more than the UCLA-Oregon State game it, cause, because just because of the offenses involved. And, and that could be Oregon very well blowing out Washington. It could be what Michael Penix. I just think one of those teams has the potential to figure out that what it can do offensively, and then just keep doing it. And and Oregon will do that to you on the offensive side of the ball, and so will Michael Penix Jr. in Washington. So I'm not ready to make a pick yet, but, man, I the bigger point I have is, yes, this Oregon-Washington game is huge, and I'm going to be at that game. It's the place to be. It's the game to watch if you can only see one game all weekend. But don't sleep on UCLA-Oregon State. It actually might be a better game as it pertains to like just watching two really good teams smash each other because I can't, like, again, with Oregon State being at home, I can't foresee a way that UCLA goes in there and runs away from Oregon State. But I also think, like, Oregon State offensively showed me something against Cal that they had not shown in several weeks. And I'm curious if they can do what Washington State failed to do in that move the ball routinely and consistently 
on that UCLA defense. Very stingy defense, 14-7 game against UCLA or Utah, and you know really held Cam Warren in check. Uh, love to hear what our listeners think of this. We're going to play some punch and audio coming up. John Wilner's going to join us at 4 o'clock to talk about the Pac-12 schedule. We'll dive deep on the football games with him. All of that still ahead right here on the BFT. I don't know. I'm always kind of stuck when we talk about the Pac-12 conference, the Pac-2 conference, the football games going on, all that, Stephen. I'm always a little bit stuck on how much do people care about this? How much are people into this? Do you share that with me? Do you share a little bit of, uh, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I do wonder because uh, it's tough because at this at the same time, like, I want to know. I want to know the finality of it, right? And I feel like we're getting so close. Finally, it's only been, what, a year and a half, uh, it seems like, since you know USC, UCLA left back last summer. Uh, and so it seems like it's almost here, the finality of it. But at the same time, like, we've been talking about it for so much. Like, I'm, I'm not as into it as I once was just because we're seeing things on the field. Like, if this was the summertime again, John, I think it would be – I'd be right back in it, and I, but I think right now since there's so many so much sports going on with basketball coming up, you know, Major League Baseball's in the playoffs. You got football, the NFL, college football. Like that, it just moved to the back burner for me a little bit. But I do want to see the finale of it. I want to, I want to know what Oregon State, and Washington State do because they've been put in such a terrible spot. I, I hope the best for them, obviously. And it's why, like, as much as you know, I look at this Pac-2 thing and what's happening on the field with Oregon State and Washington State. And I want to separate them. You can't really do that because what's happening on the field to Oregon State and Washington State absolutely is relevant to their plight. And it underscores the the fact that these two teams are ranked, the fact that these two teams are playing well, they're playing good football. And, you know, people are looking at them saying, hey, they're relevant, they're top 25 teams, Uh, they still both have a path to the potential Pac-12 championship game. They're drawing decent audiences. You know, Oregon State's going to play a, a game on Fox and have that big platform on Saturday. The, the fact that the programs are competing on the field and producing on the field absolutely matters and frames what is going on with the court case and their uncertain future because, you know, it, it just amplifies the idea that they got hosed in this situation. They didn't get a fair shake from college football. They didn't get a fair shake from the TV partners. Hell, they they didn't get a fair shake from their own partners within the Pac-12 conference that you know should have been looking out for them. And so, I, as much as I want to separate, hey, let's talk about the business of the weekend and the football and what happened on the field with Oregon State and what they're, what's going to happen this weekend when they play UCLA or what happened with Cam Ward and Washington State last weekend when they played UCLA and compartmentalize that i think it's a real disservice in a way to try to pretend you know this hand doesn't have to do with what this you know the right hand doesn't have to do with what the left hand's doing because these things are absolutely connected and they they just frame and put into focus how ridiculous it is that utah and arizona and arizona state and oregon and washington and stanford and cal have all found places to go play some of them for pennies on the dollar, and left behind the Cougars and the Beavers, who are still competing, still playing their asses off, still out there mattering, still trying to get to the conference championship game, 
and you know punch everybody else in the nose and so i get a little little mixed up sometimes because i go you know i really want to talk about the football and then i want to have this separate side conversation about what's going to happen next year in 2024 but the truth is Oregon State and Washington State are living this every day, every week, every game, every hour, every minute, to the point where when the University of Washington files a motion to dismiss the lawsuit that the Cougars and the Beavers have filed in Whitman County Superior Court, my phone blows up from attorneys on both sides who are trying to make their argument because they're trying to win the public perception battle. But the truth is, I think 90% of people who are viewing this Oregon State-Washington State scenario, side with Oregon State and Washington State, even if they're a diehard Duck fan, even if they're a diehard Husky fan, even if they're, they're a fan who has no dog in the fight, they just go, hey, that's not right what happened to Oregon State and Washington State. So, it, you know, there's this uh, amalgam of emotion and feeling and these two things going on. And, you know, on one hand, I'm charged with being a sports writer and a radio show host and I love talking about games, covering games, being at the stadium, seeing great players, seeing great performances. But in the background of this uh, whole scenario, we've got this Pac-2 thing and the uncertainty of the Pac-2 conference that I think everyone would benefit from if the 10 remaining schools would just go, hey, look, we know this isn't fair. If we were in your position, uh, you know, we would hope that you would see it our way and that everybody just kind of does the right thing. But the problem is... You've got each of these schools looking at, hey, there, there's, so there's some millions of dollars that are invested and involved in this court case. And, you know, Arizona State, Utah, and everybody else is going, hey, that's a couple million bucks. Well, that could pay for something. And so they're all sort of trying to avoid discovery and also trying to wring as much money as they can out of the Pac-12 on their way out of the conference. And, and the real bummer for Oregon State, John, is that they'd be the best team in the Big 12, right? Like, yeah, besides, right. you know, Texas and Oklahoma, they're on the way out. There's only one other team that's ranked right now. And even if you put in the Pac-12 teams that are going to the Big 12, Oregon State is still the best team in the Big 12, and they're the ones that doesn't have a home. Like, that's yeah. that's the real bummer for me. Yeah, I looked at the – I was looking at the Big 12 conference – uh, in the uh, as it pertains to the top 25 poll the other day. And, you know, at the time they had, you know, I was thinking about who, the Big 12 teams in 2024. So I'm throwing out Texas and Oklahoma. At the time they would have had Utah and they would have had Kansas ranked. Two teams. Same number as the Pac-2, ironically. Uh, and then you start looking at the television ratings from the weekend and you throw out Texas and Oklahoma because they're going to the SEC. And you look at the Big 12 teams and nobody was out you know, getting out, uh, out rating Washington State's game or Oregon State's game. And so they would have the two highest rated teams in the Big 12, and they'd have just as many ranked teams as the Big 12, uh, the Pac-2 conference. So it's just, it's all kind of silly, and I hope that it gets rectified. Let's play some punch at audio. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. I don't know if you guys caught the end of the Miami-Georgia Tech football game over the weekend, but it was a little bit of a nightmare for Mario Cristobal, the coach at Miami, who had the ball... Georgia Tech was out of timeouts. All Miami had to do was snap the ball and kneel on it. Here's how it sounded in the uh, final moments 
as Georgia Tech recovers a fumble two plays later. Here's Cheney. Just straight ahead, tackled, and the ball popped out. He's got to read the clock. I mean, read the card. I mean, to and me, Georgia Tech has it with 26 seconds left. Kyle Kennard comes up with the fumble. You should not be running the football. I mean, it, it is. It, you should be taking a knee. As soon as you got that first down, they used that last time out. As long as you milk it all the way down, you don't need to be doing this, and you certainly don't need to be fighting for extra yards. To further review, the ruling on the field stands. First down to Georgia Tech. So with 26 seconds left, Miami commits its fourth turnover of the night on the fumble by Cheney. Three to the field for King. Up in the pocket, going to loop it down the field, and it is caught! And that's Rutherford, who hangs on to it in Miami territory. To the receivers to the top of the screen. Here's King. From the pocket, flush to his right with six, five, gonna loop it downfield, and ball is caught! Touchdown, Georgia Tech! With one second to go in the ball game, Christian Leary hauls it in. I mean, I'm gonna say it, it needs to be said, that's one of the biggest coaching mistakes at this level that I have ever seen in my lifetime. You should not be running the football. You run the football at fumbles, and then you give up a score. That is devastating for a 4-0 Miami team to get their first loss of the season on a sequence like that. Well, he stole victory from the Jaws. No, he stole a loss from the Jaws of victory. Mario Cristobal, not the first time he's done this. Oregon fans, you, you may remember 2018 against Stanford. 59 seconds left. Ducks had the ball at midfield. Mario Cristobal, not one to take a knee, okay? Maybe it's the fact that he's a mixed martial arts guy, you know. It's the it's the discipline of submission. Doesn't want to take a knee. Would rather run the ball at you one more time, prove his dominance. Mario Cristobal has C.J. Verdell run the ball. Fumble. David Shaw takes it. Four plays later, game-tying field goal, head to overtime. I remember Cristobal after that Oregon game being a little bit defiant about it. Like, you know, hey, we got to hold on to the ball. I would run it again. Because if he'd just taken a knee, taken a knee, Stanford would have burned a timeout, had to burn their final timeout. Oregon probably has to punt the ball on fourth down, but could kick the ball out of bounds. Just don't get a punt block. You win the game, you walk off a winner. But at the very least, Stanford would have had to burn their time out at the end of that 2018 game. There's no time for them to turn around and kind of drive down the field and kick a jet toner field goal. This Georgia Tech game, I don't think Oregon fans are surprised. We saw enough of this during the Mario Cristobal tenure. There was clock management issues. I remember after multiple games, Wondering if he just needed somebody on his staff to be the clock person. Do they have an assistant coach who can be like, hey, coach, situationally, all you have to do is take a knee here. We don't have to run a play. I actually think this is one of the dangers you have when you have kind of an authoritarian coach who wants it done his way. He's in control. It's his way. It's his call. I know the offensive coordinator is saying, put it on me. I called the play. 
But the head coach's job there is to say, hey, this game's in hand. Let's snap it and take a knee and walk off winners. Didn't happen. Here's Mario Cristobal in the post game talking about it. You know, when the drive started, it was going to be at 157, you know, and um, we could burn about 127 off, and then it was recalibrated. Um, it should have taken a timeout right there at the end. Thought he could get the first down, and you know, we talked about two hands on the ball, but that's not good enough to have told him to take any in. That's it. Fumbled the ball at 25, and they went 75 yards in two plays. So, no excuse. We should have taken a knee. Okay. We should have taken a knee is the only thing he could really say in the aftermath of that. Is uh, this fireable? I, I don't think it's fireable because Mario Cristobal's job ultimately, and the reason why he was hired, was to recruit players, raise the profile of Miami football, contend for championships, and I think he's done that. Like, he is, this season, they're un, they were undefeated. The talent level's off the charts. I don't think this incident by itself is a fireable offense for Mario Cristobal. But if things go sideways, if he suffers the kind of season that he did a year ago, if he continues to lose football games at home, they're 0-5 inside that stadium in conference games. If he continues to lose games and it goes sour from here, we're going to look back at this and we're going to say that was the moment that it turned on him. That was when the, the switch got flipped, so to speak. Because while it's not a fireable offense you know, by itself, it does sort of signify one of those moves that is, you know, signifies a larger problem. And Mario Cristobal at Oregon, he had this issue. He didn't want to run. He didn't want to throw the football when he had Justin Herbert. He liked to run the ball. Like I remember an overtime game against Washington where he ran and ran and ran, and and he was so happy with that. And I thought, okay, that's cool. That's who you are. But you've got Justin Herbert. Don't be afraid to put the ball in the air. And I and I think it was one of these games. Like you look at the the stat sheet from this game, Miami, like completely dominated statistically. They dominated in yardage. They dominated in first downs. Where they didn't dominate was the scoreboard. And they left themselves in a vulnerable position. Now, if you're an Oregon fan, you might be nodding your head here. But there were several times during the Mario Cristobal era at Oregon where I thought the way Oregon played, much preferring to win a game 20-7 versus 52-28, the way that Oregon played left it open to some outcomes like this. Meaning, when you play in games that are just a little tighter, a little more conservative, you'd rather just keep the score down, run the football, milk the clock, you do leave yourselves in position to let an inferior team make a couple of big plays and turn the game upside down on you. And that's what happened here. I mean, look, there's a lot of other sins that were committed by Miami four turnovers in the game defense that gave up a 75 yard drive on two plays after the turnover like there's some finger pointing to go around but it started with you know a ridiculous decision by mario cristobal take the damn knee take the victory i know i know it's not like the coolest thing to do to take a knee you'd rather run the football knock somebody back off the line of scrimmage plant your foot in the ground like you used to say but it cost him this one. It's, it was a bad look.
for Cristobal. I don't think it gets him fired. But I'm also left thinking a little bit about Oregon, if I can go on a little bit of a rant here. Is there a guardian angel watching over Rob Mullins, the Oregon athletic director? All he did is offer Mario Cristobal $85 million in contract. Mario says, no, I'm going to Miami. Offer Willie Taggart five or six million a year while Florida State was sniffing around. It was an equally obnoxious contract offer that he made to Willie Taggart. Willie Taggart says, no, no, I'm going to Florida State. Is there some kind of guardian angel looking over Oregon Athletic Director Rob Mullins? Because Cristobal doesn't take the job. Taggart doesn't take the job. And even though Rob Mullins offered both of those guys huge contracts that would have kept him in Eugene forever... Oregon's better off with Dan Lanning. Like, he's a better coach. Just as good a recruiter, better coach. And has more trajectory with Dan Lanning. You know, it's it's like, uh, you know, Garth Brooks saying about unanswered prayers, you know? This is the stuff of Rob Mullins and the Oregon athletic director. He's offering these guys big contracts, got to keep them, got to save them. And in the end, you look up and you go, hey, you know what? Oregon's better off that Mario Cristobal left and better off that Willie Taggart left. How about that? Leave it right here. I want to talk for a second about your grandparents' college football teams. Do you remember your grandparents' college football teams? I'm talking about uh, the Oregon Ducks and the Oregon State Beavers. Do you remember your grandparents' teams? They would talk about those teams playing in a bunch of games that weren't that meaningful, in stadiums that were empty. They may reference a 0-0 tie in a rivalry game. They may tell you about being able to drive into the stadium parking lot and not have to wait in line and to buy a ticket anywhere in the stadium and then just move down and be able to get a closer seat. They talk about how few people were inside the stadium. I know. When I arrived in the state of Oregon to cover sports, I had people telling me all about their grandparents' college football teams. Oh, those Oregon fans. Oh, those Oregon State fans. 28 straight years, Oregon State didn't go to a bowl game. Oregon wasn't much better. There were some appearances, but man, a lot of times these college football teams made you want to cover your eyes. Didn't play all that well. Weren't all that exciting, but your grandparents would talk about being at the stadium and being there and rooting and supporting their teams. That was your grandparents' experience. I want you to think for just a second now about your grandchildren because your grandchildren are going to hear about a very different kind of college football program. If you're a Beaver fan or a Duck fan, you're going to tell your grandkids about these programs that were perennially ranked, that competed in bowl games, that sent a line of players to the NFL. I don't want that to get lost this week. As Oregon's getting ready to play Washington, and as Oregon State ranked one loss, is getting ready to host UCLA in a big football game. And you look at the combined records of these two teams, and you're looking at you know nine and one, ten and one, and a chance here to have, to both be ranked in the top 15 at the end of the weekend. And a chance here, like still a possibility that these two teams could not only play in a Civil War football game, but they could meet in a conference championship game if they just both continue to win and win and win till they play each other 
in that rivalry game matchup. I mean, can you imagine an undefeated Oregon team against a one-loss Oregon State team on Black Friday, day after Thanksgiving, playing for all the marbles? And by all the marbles, I mean if Oregon State wins that game, it propels and compels a matchup in the conference championship game in Vegas. It's not unthinkable. Except to your grandparents who would be like, oh, you're out of your mind. I watched them play a 0-0 tie in which there were like 12 fumbles and a bunch of missed field goals and nobody could tackle anybody, and we called it the toilet bowl. Or your grandparents who tell you, no, 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 we went decades without seeing a bowl game. We just wanted to see a football game in which our team you know, won on a given Saturday. Yes, I'm talking now about your legacy, not just your grandparents' legacy. You're going to be able to hand your grandkids if you're an Oregon fan or an Oregon State fan, a pretty good football program, a whole bunch of memories of standing in the parking lot, tailgating, watching great football, seeing players who go on to play in the NFL. And so I guess what I'm just saying is amid all of this all of this drama and all of the nostalgia of the final Pac-12 season, don't let it be lost on you that you're, you've got a season to enjoy and you've got a football program that isn't at all like your granddad's football program. You've got a football program that's competing, that has the big stage on Saturday, national TV audience. The state of Oregon is going to dominate two TV broadcasts, one at 1230, one later in the evening. It's going to be like a six-hour infomercial for, like, the Willamette Valley and, you know, the state of Oregon and two great football programs. Don't let that be lost. Because if, if you, if, you know, you're, as much as your grandparents told you about being in that damn stadium when nobody else was there, I want you to be able to tell your grandkids how much you enjoyed this college football season. John Wilner, coming up, San Jose Mercury News superstar. We'll talk about the Pac-12. I don't know what my buddy John Wilner's been doing today, but I've been, uh, I've been on the phone with lawyers. I've been on the phone with officials at Oregon State and Washington State. And I'm trying to make sense of everything that's going on. And, oh, also talk about the big football games that are coming up this weekend. John Wilner can read him at Pac12Hotline.com, the Bay Area News Group superstar, and the famed co-host of Kanzano and Wilner, the podcast, joining us. How are you? How's your day been? <laughs> yeah, it's been pretty busy the last few hours uh, with the legal proceedings, shall we say. Like today was the deadline for the 10 schools to file motions to dismiss the lawsuit brought by Washington State and Oregon State, and sure enough, that's what they did. The motion to dismiss, I you know, help me out. Let's just talk, you and I talking like, you know, we're having a conversation about this because... You know, I started asking attorneys on both sides, like, is this a formality that this would happen? And they kind of agreed that, yes, regardless if you flip the attorney teams, both attorneys kind of said, hey, we would file this regardless. You know, Washington obviously wants this thrown out. I was a little surprised, Wilner, to see the brief with the nine schools that are out of state signing it because they've largely not really participated in this and this is the first time that they kind of had a voice in it what did you make of the brief that the nine schools kind of said hey we agree this should be thrown out 
Yeah, well, I mean, I was kind of figuring that they're all in it together and just the legal nature kind of they're claiming that the Whitman County, Washington court doesn't have jurisdiction over them. So that's why Washington kind of acted alone in, in filing the motion uh, to intervene. But, you know, that, that I've always viewed all 10 as a group and the two as a group. So to me, it, it makes sense. I mean, they all released a statement together saying that they didn't violate the bylaws, right? But the, from the, just from the, the narrow legal issue with, with the jurisdiction, they kind of have to, I guess they feel like they wanted to separate and claim uh, sovereign immunity, essentially. Yeah, and uh, separating and claiming sovereign immunity and, oh, by the way, a couple of hearings on the horizon, October 25th now, and then November 14th if it moves forward. I want discovery. Are you, are you down for discovery? I am down for that. that absolutely. I mean, it, it could lead to. Now, I don't know exactly how much, uh, how many of the documents are going to ever be made public, and what the redactions are going to be like. But certainly, uh, it will be interesting to see what comes out of this whole thing, right? Because Washington, I think Washington State and Oregon State, they they want to know, you know, who the other. 10 schools were talking to, when they were talking to them, how detailed those conversations were in terms of the other conferences. I mean, were some of those schools saying we're all in with the Pac-12 while they're having these ongoing discussions with other leagues? I think that that would certainly be very interesting for uh, for the case, right? I mean, my guess is that's a lot of what Washington State and Oregon State are after. Yeah, John Wilner with us, Bay Area News Group. The the jurisdiction of this case uh, and obviously the filings today and the questions about, you know, sovereign immunity, all, all going on while the schools also announced, and you reported this this morning, that they have engaged in or will engage in some mediation. Do you see mediation as a real possibility to solve things, or is this just mediation because that's what you do? when you're also in a lawsuit to show good faith? Boy, great question. Uh, the mediation began on October 2nd, uh, according to the court documents, and is expected to go for the rest of the month. I, I think it's a little early uh, for, for mediation in the process, but I could see that they get to late October, even early November, and that hearing on the preliminary injunction is, is looming and they just want to get this whole thing settled. I don't, well, I don't know that we'll see a, you know, a resolution on the mediation in the next couple of weeks, but maybe as we get, get closer, we'll see. It certainly is, mediation is certainly something that happens a lot in, in cases like this, but that certainly doesn't mean they're going to get it settled. What's George Klyovkov's role in this anymore? And I saw, you know, he's not going to be speaking at the basketball media days. He's really got nothing to say there. What's his role in all of this anymore? I mean, he. I think he's just kind of helping to run the conference on a day-to-day -day basis. But he's, I mean, he's doesn't have much of a role in any of the things that really matter, right? Uh, whether it's the legal issues or 
the schools leaving or Washington State, Oregon State trying to re- reform the conference, all the big picture stuff he's out of. I mean, in some ways he's just kind of a puppet head, right? Uh, but they do need, I mean, they've got you know, 850 live events they got to produce this year. They've got all these sports competitions, uh, seasons until May. They, the conference needs to have somebody in charge. Now, they could just, you know, uh, cut him loose and name an interim commissioner. The thing is, they probably got to pay him anyhow. And so, why, you know, why not just keep him on to run the run the day to day? I mean, the conference needs somebody to represent it at various meetings and college football playoff stuff. So he's he's doing that, but man, he's got no he's got no teeth, right? I mean, he's walking around gumming everything to death. <laughs> John Wilner with us. Uh, Wilner gumming everything to death. I love that. Uh, Wilner, let, I mean, let's really, pick... he, he's just a, he's kind of a figurehead. Yeah. Let's pivot to the football itself. Uh, you know, we watched we watched a great weekend of football again. The stage is set for Oregon, Washington, UCLA, Oregon State's not bad. USC still undefeated, even though they've looked about as bad as an undefeated team can look at times. You know, how good is this football in your eyes, and where is it headed? Are we about to see the cannibalization begin, or? Do you think we'll have contenders emerge here in the next two weeks? I mean, we've already seen a little cannibalization, right, with with, with UCLA beating Washington State uh, and Oregon State beating Utah. What was that, two weeks ago? It's inevitable. And and part of the reason it's inevitable is because the schedule. Because basically Utah, USC, Oregon, Washington, Washington State, they're all, Oregon State, they're all playing each other for the most part, uh, whereas, you know, last year USC didn't play Oregon or Washington, right? I mean, imagine if we had that set up this year. So uh, I think that it's inevitable. The question is going to be, is anybody going to lose twice? Uh, because I think if you lose twice, you're out of the playoff hunt. As good as the conference is, uh, I just think that that's, that's too far to fall behind. So can, can somebody get through? the regular season and the conference championship game with, with one loss. I don't think anybody's going undefeated, but, man, that, that second loss is going to be killer. And there's so many good teams that are playing each other. You could see how, if you include the conference championship, nobody can get out of the Pac-12 with with one, one loss. It's going to be tough. John Wilner with us, San Jose Mercury News. Chip Kelly and UCLA. You know, every time I forget about them, they they rise back up and post a win that says, "Hey, don't forget about us." I feel like it was that kind of moment on Saturday against uh, against Cam Ward in Washington State. Another big one for Chip Kelly as they go to Reeser Stadium, tough place to win. But that that does feel like an elimination game under your format. It does, yeah, it is for sure, and, and it'll be real interesting because the Bruins are kind of the opposite of what they've been. They, you know, last year they were at the average like 40 a game and they gave up like 39 a game. Uh, this year their defense looks like it's pretty legit, but their offense isn't very good. Uh, so it's going to be, I think it's going to be a fascinating game. I mean, certainly Oregon-Washington is getting all the attention and, and justifiably so. But, I mean, I think UCLA-Oregon State's going to be fascinating too. And it's going to be a old-school game, right? A real contrast 
to what's going on in Seattle because you know Oregon State wants to run the ball 30-plus times a game, and UCLA is going to try to run the ball and play good defense. So you could have a game in Seattle that's 50-45 and a game in Corvallis that is, you know, 21-17. It'll be a fascinating contrast. Wilner, the, pivoting to the game in Seattle, what is that outcome about in your mind? Like you and I will give our official picks on our podcast later this week, but what you know in your mind, what is that game about? What are the factors involved? Where is your head, uh, you know, with uh, on a Monday of game week? I'm just thinking about how many fights there will be in the stands. <laughs> you know, I mean, because you figure as much hatred as there is. And then you add on the stakes, right? This is the first time they've ever played when both teams were in the top ten. They both have Heisman Trophy candidates. They both are thinking about the playoffs. I mean, it's it's fantastic. Game day is going to be there. I, I just think the the stands are going to be the play, the place to be before the game. That is going to be awesome. Uh, I, to me, it's all about the line of scrimmage and. Is Washington going to be able to stop Oregon's running game? And is Oregon going to be able to pressure Michael Penix and disrupt Washington's passing game? Right? To which defense is going to play better? Uh, because if if you don't play good defense, uh, you know the other team's going to get get forty plus. So to me, that's what it all comes down to. I think Oregon, to this point, is a little bit more of a complete team than the Huskies are. I think Oregon's better defensively and has more balance on offense. But certainly that doesn't mean the Ducks are going to win. Uh, I mean, I thought that last year, too, when Washington went into Watson and won the game. Yeah, I, I keep thinking about, you know, we, we always talk about those signature games that, that teams will put in. And Michael Penix Jr., Bo Nix, both guys that are bantered about uh, in this Heisman race, I almost think it's almost like a Heisman elimination as well. If one of these guys just flat out plays the other, can, you know, do we eliminate Bo Nix or do we eliminate Michael Penix Jr.? If Oregon, if Bo Nix just has a huge day, throws six touchdown passes and outshines Penix, it's it's that kind of stage, that kind of game. It, it feels like that you know, as games go, this is the biggest game I can remember in several years. Even though last year's game was big, this is the biggest Washington Oregon game with the highest stakes that I can that I can think about. Oh, it's it's uh, yeah. I think it's pretty close to unprecedented. Uh, certainly, they have met before when both were ranked, but neither when both were in the top ten. Uh, I I don't know about the Heisman thing. You know, certainly, if one guy plays poorly, yes. But if it's a case where one guy is fantastic and the other guy is good, uh, I don't know that it's an elimination game. Uh, because you, there's still going to be so many more chances, right? They're both going to be going against USC in November and Caleb Williams, and he's the Heisman frontrunner. So, I mean, let's just say Knicks, Knicks plays well, but Penix is better and Oregon loses by 10 points. That doesn't mean Knicks is out of it. If he turns around and has a great stretch run and, and outplays Caleb Williams, then he's going to be right back in it. And the other pieces, the Huskies and Ducks, could meet again in Las Vegas, and that game would have obviously enormous stakes. So, I think that uh, there's so much to play out. The Pac-12 has got 12 games, 12 conference games in the final half of the season with ranked teams met against ranked teams, and uh, there's just so much to play out. The, 
it's great that the Oregon-Washington game is in the middle of October, and it's certainly great they both got a, a week off to get ready and get, get fresh. But I don't know that we can assign too much significance to it because they both have such challenging schedules down the stretch run and so much can happen. When you look at Utah's season, it's been disappointing, hasn't gone as they thought. Cam Rising just hasn't been healthy. We get the news last week that Rising's injury was not just an ACL tear. It was a full con- reconstruction of the knee with an MCL, and ACL, and torn meniscus. A lot more involved. Did Utah misplay that in your mind? I think you could make that case. I mean, I they he had he tore something I'd never even heard of. I mean, I, I got the image <laughs> like his, that his lower leg was dangling. Basically, the skin was the only thing holding his lower leg uh, together, right? I mean, it sounded just horrific. And so it made me think, well, it was that bad. Why was there even uh, any kind of speculation that he might be ready for the Florida game? There's no way that was going to happen. So, But it's complicated because you're dealing with student privacy issues, right? So ultimately, if he doesn't want to say anything about the severity of the injury for whatever reason, Utah is very limited. But I would say, knowing what we know now, that in an ideal world, Utah would have been more, with Rising's approval, Utah would have been a little bit more proactive, and they would have said sometime in early August, he's not ready for the first few games. The knee injury was just too severe. Uh, And I think that 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 would have helped, you know, certainly the narrative, and it just might have helped the whole vibe around the program provided clarity because there was no way he was going to play against Florida knowing what we know now. Uh, Yes, they wanted to keep opponents guessing, but at some point you just got to say, you know what, Uh, it's it's not happening. Everybody needs to just be patient, and we'll see what happens. John Wilner with us. USC Notre Dame is happening this weekend, and you talk about being under under the radar. The Oregon-Washington game's got my attention. Oregon State-UCLA's got my attention. You know, you've got um, ABC and Fox broadcasting the two games that will be held in Seattle and in Corvallis. But on NBC, we're going to see USC and Notre Dame at 430. How big a game is this for USC? Is it big for the conference in your mind? What are the stakes? Well, I would say that it was going to be big until Notre Dame lost to Louisville, right? Because Notre Dame always stands as a – an obstacle for the Pac-12 getting a team in the playoff. Because anytime Notre Dame's going to be 12-0 or 11-1, they're kind of in, in the playoff line ahead of the Pac-12 champ. But once Notre Dame got that second loss, they are no longer a threat to keep the Pac-12 champ out of the playoff. So to me, the game doesn't have nearly as much significance for the, for the conference as a whole because the Irish have two losses. But it's a huge game for USC because USC – you know, if they lose in South Bend, they have to run the table through the Pac-12. they got to be Utah, Washington, Oregon, UCLA, then win the Pac-12 championship game. Uh, they can't afford to lose they, out in this game because then they have no margin for error in conference play if they want to get into the playoffs. So, gigantic game for the Trojans. Real, It'll be real interesting, too, because their defense has been so terrible uh, and Notre Dame actually has the threat of a passing game this year, which it hasn't. It didn't really have last year. So 
Uh, I'm curious to see how SC reacts. And then SC, they go to South Bend. Then they got to turn around, and they're going to uh, they're going to Salt Lake City the next week. Really tough back to back for the Trojans. John Wilner with us. This season is obviously heading to Vegas. We talked at the beginning of the year and talked about who you thought and who I thought would get to Las Vegas. Who right now, prior to this Oregon-Washington game being played, in your mind, do you have sort of penciled in to play each other in Vegas? Right now, I think there's going to be a rematch. I think they're the two best teams. I have not seen SC's defense just very flawed. Uh, and my question about Oregon State and Washington State, uh, Utah also, big problems, right, because of the Cam Rising situation. So Oregon State Washington State, I am not sold on either of them on the road. I have not, you know, Oregon State went to Cal, yes, they won, but they gave up 42 points. They went to Pullman, they gave up 30, 38 points. Washington State went to UCLA, couldn't get it going. You know, you got to be able to win on the road. I haven't seen enough of either of those teams winning on the road uh, and playing at a high level on the road on both sides of the ball to think that they're going to get through and get to Vegas. So to me right now, if you're asking, I say Oregon-Washington rematch in Vegas, and I'm, I'm all for that. That would be awesome. I think it would be, uh, it would be fantastic. I also think, you know, you never know what's going to happen. Pac-12 after dark, all these teams playing each other. There's some teams like UCLA, Oregon State, Utah that can win on any given day. In the background, yeah. Colorado, Colorado losing some sizzle, but a couple things. Uh, Shador Sanders raising the watch to the ASU student section. Bad form or, or okay for a college kid? I think bad form. He, he's, he has a lot of bad forms, right? I, I have not been uh, – he, he's a terrific player. But I'm uh, not a fan of his actions. I, I think he needs to get a little bit more mature. Uh, uh, that's my that's my view of, of it. This certainly isn't. That wasn't the first time where he's done something on the field that I thought, you know what, you need to you need to act your age a little bit. How about the Colorado story in general? They are now sitting within arm's reach, basically, of a bowl possibility of a bowl game they've got games with stanford and arizona uh on the horizon it, it feels like if they play well down the stretch here they're gonna they're gonna have a legit shot to get to six do you see them at six wins i do well i do and i think that we'll know a lot more uh friday night because they host stanford if they lose to stanford then it's going to get a little bit tricky uh, but if they beat Stanford, they're five and two, and and you know they've got five games left to win to win one. Uh, they are they are much better than they were, but they're still not that good. I mean, they just struggled to beat ASU. ASU's terrible, right? They struggled to beat Colorado State. Colorado State just lost to Utah State by twenty. Uh, so it's you know college football fans don't like nuance, but. Colorado is is nuanced. They are much better, but still not that good. And so they're kind of in that gray area a little bit, which is fine. That's what it's supposed to be in the first year of a rebuilding process with a new head coach, right? And if they get to six wins, it's a, it's a huge success for them. It's just that the way the season started, I think, you know, raised expectations beyond what was reasonable given 
their personnel. Their defense isn't very good, and their offensive line is terrible. And uh, they are going to take on, uh, you know, they're going to lose several more times, but I do think that they, they have a great chance to get to 6-6. Six and six. Uh, And if they beat Stanford, they're they're basically a lock for the the Bulls, I think. Mario Cristobal, this is a little outside the Pac-12, but i got to know what you thought when you saw Miami running the football and Cristobal looking sick to himself uh, on the sideline. He did the same thing at the Stanford game in... uh, 2018. 2018, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Where they lost in overtime, right? Yeah. Was, essentially, was essentially the, the same thing. Lost? Yeah, fifty nine. In that yeah. one, there was fifty nine seconds left. Stanford had one timeout. It's second down. They're near midfield. He could have just taken a knee, taken a knee, and punted. And in and there's some argument whether he would have had to punt or not because there would only been about five or eight seconds if the if the officials had wound it exactly right, or you know maybe you just you just take a knee and you do that thing where the quarterback kind of waits, 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 and then takes a knee. But it, um, he was defiant in that game. He said, "No, oh, we have to be able to run the ball. We have to be able to hand it off. We should not be fumbling it. And in this one, I think it's a little worse because, you know, Georgia Tech had no timeouts. Like, they can't stop the clock. You just kneel and it's over. Yeah, bad, bad. Uh, not fireable on the spot bad, but kind of close. I mean, just <laughs> terrible. And he didn't, you know, he obviously didn't learn from before. And, you gotta, you gotta learn as a head coach. So, uh, if you had said to me, uh, if you had laid out the situation without telling me the head coach or the team, but just said, "This is what happened," I would have said, "Oh, Mario at work again." Yeah, yeah. It's just, uh, it's stubborn, and hopefully he learns from it. But you're right. I don't think it's fireable, but I think it's one of those beginning of the end if if the narrative you know if he ends up getting fired part of that story goes back to last saturday and you know they, people say well that was the beginning of it or that was a big pivot point yep. in that in that discussion uh all right uh it can become Seattle. a it can become a bad narrative very quickly for him yeah well Wilner, great job covering this conference i'll catch up with you i appreciate uh you joining us on short notice and uh talking about what you know so thanks man Thanks as always, my friend. I'll see you. There he goes, John Wilner. Pac-12, a lot of drama and a lot of good football, too. Leave it here. Anna has popped into the studio. I have to say, she doesn't know this. I'm about to break some news in our household. She doesn't know this, but um, there. Uh, you remember the saga of the uh, candy? Do you remember the ongoing saga of the Halloween candy? <laughs> I don't know about yeah. ongoing. I it's recall, ongoing for me. I recall a one-day incident in which large amounts of Halloween candy were purchased and hidden from the majority of the members of the household to preserve their existence until Halloween. And certain members of the family were very upset and searching for the Halloween candy like Gollum searching for the ring. That's so mean. That's just mean. You know? But not untrue. Go on. It, but just name names, okay? <laughs> you bought candy at Costco. You got scammed at Costco. They sent you they sold you two giant industrial sized bags of miniature candies. 
And there, it includes Milky Way and Twix and Reese's yeah, and Hundred Grand and two stuff. forms of peanuts. Yeah. And uh, Kit Kat. And I know this because I sorted through it looking for the Snicker bars and yeah. the Mil- Milky Way and the Twix yeah. in general. Okay. And I kind of go past the peanuts and whatever, <laughs> what? peanut M&Ms. Uh, but here's the problem, and I got backed up. I, I'm really proud of the audience of the show. They didn't pander to you in this case. Wow. They normally pander to you. Yeah. They, I don't need anyone pandering to they, me. Uh, they backed me. Yeah. They called in, and they said, this is ridiculous. You don't buy Halloween candy <laughs> that far in advance. Oh. It's unreasonable. Okay. It's cruel and unusual. <laughs> but... Um, the saga of the ongoing saga is that that bag that you put into this studio. Yeah, how's that going for it's you? It's about half gone. Okay. Well, because for anyone who wasn't <laughs> listening on that fateful day, I relented and got the bags and in a very typical wife sort of way in a huff. I don't know if that was Put typical. the bags in the studio right there in the open for you and said, you want them? Here, take them. You deal with it. Yeah, you did what parents do if they catch their kid. You know, smoking a cigarette or something. (laughs) You just went, all right, smoke the whole pack. Let's see how much you like it. Yeah. Let's see how enjoyable that is, you idiot. Yeah, if we were parenting in the 90s. (laughs) I was a 90s parent slash wife in that moment. Yes. Go on. But but this whole thing, you know, the the other part of this equation, Anna, is I fashion myself a big candy bar giver. Okay. You know, like... A giver. I think the neighborhood kids have come to realize. Oh, like a bi- as in big, can- the full-size yeah. candy bar giver, yes. That the BFT hands out full-size candy bars, okay? Okay, okay. That guy, that's why they, we got how many steps up to the front of the house? 22. 22 steps, you're getting a full Snicker bar. I'm not giving you one of those mini bite-sized, <laughs> especially not, you know which one I, you know which one I really hate? <laughs> What's the one I don't mind, you know, I don't mind. Like the third size, Stephen will back me. You don't mind the third sized candy bar that you get that's about inch and a half. Fun size. Two inches. No, no, no. But the one I really don't like is that one that it it looks like a square. Oh, it's not even a fun size. It's like a bite size. The bite size one is pointless. (laughs) It's like sunflower seeds. You know, you got to spend all that time cracking them. Opening them, getting Too that much little, work. little bitty, itty bitty little seed inside of the not, sunflower seed. Not enough reward. Too and much work, not yeah, enough reward. That I, uh, I'm not going for that guy. Okay. But I'm a full-size candy bar guy. You're gonna, yeah. you're gonna climb 20. You're, you're six years old. Uh huh. Okay. You're in a Tyrannosaurus Rex suit. <laughs> Inflatable. You're carrying a sack of candy, crappy candy that other neighbors have given you. Oh. Okay. Okay. Tootsie Rolls. Oh wow. Smarties. You know, some, uh, just, you know, throwing shade on the neighborhood. Go on. (laughs) So you've been to all these other houses. You got nothing for your, not your hall. (laughs) And you got to come up 22 steps in that T-Rex suit. You're getting a Snicker bar. Okay. Yeah. And you're often presented, by the way, with a sign because we're out trick or treating. It says take one. No, it says take two. (laughs) Oh, it says take two. Take two candy bars. (laughs) You're in charge of the sign. You know, what's so funny. I was in Costco just an hour ago, and I passed by the full-size candy bars, and I thought to myself, well, should I get some? Because John's at home doing a public service, eating all the bite-size and fun-size candy. We're surely going to run out by Halloween. 
And I skipped it. I said, let's see. Let me check the date. October 9th. He's still going to say it's too soon. Too soon. You got to buy these things about October 22nd. Costco's going to run out. I'll They're give going you nine, to run out. I need, yeah, I'll give you a nine-day grace period. Costco never runs out of anything. That's yeah, not you. true. Pandemic, they ran out of toilet paper all the time. I, I think nine days in front of All Hallows Eve is the appropriate time to buy the candy. Okay. okay. Nine days. Mark my words. No sooner. They're going to get rid of all that Halloween candy and replace it fully with Christmas crap. That's what they want you to think. That's where they're training you. You're like a chimpanzee in a movie. Like, they've got you They've got you uh, down to buy that candy in September, you know, and, and then what? Then they're going to just, that. as one of the callers, we had, we had actually had one of the candy dealers call into the show, remember? Yeah, yeah. He called in. It was like us having a conversation about crack or heroin, and a drug dealer would call in. This guy called in, and he says, look, that's candy that they're selling you in September is supposed to be for your kids' lunches. That bag of candy you bought wasn't designed for Halloween. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. That candy is designed for our children to go to lunch with at school. Never mind the vampires that are on the outside of the packaging. <laughs> Uh, so let's just let's just stipulate because this is again. I don't know. I was ripping through the packaging. I, I never looked at it. I know you, you look at the packaging. I just <laughs> <laughs> you guys are like feral cats I was, ripping into this I stuff. Had, I couldn't see it from that close up because I was tearing it with my mouth. <laughs> again, Gollum couldn't read it. Um, so let's this because this is what married people do. So we have to reach this agreement right now. We've never like we haven't really had a spoken agreement about this. So we're going to every year be the full size candy bar people. We're going to be those people. I think we established that expectation. Eh, we've gone back and forth. How mad are those six year olds and the T Rex and the bunny rabbit and the cowboy outfits going to be when they climb twenty two stairs and get a bite size three musketeers? And then last year and the year before, they got a full size candy bar. You don't remember the first year that I brought full size candy bars home. You don't remember uh, what you said. It was a said. change in philosophy because I wasn't <laughs> used to it. You said <laughs> a chef. you gave me crap because you said. Uh, something along the lines of... I'm going to be quoted now? Yeah. <laughs> this is awesome. This is... I'm right here. I can speak for myself. You're going to quote me? Do you remember what you said? I don't know. I have no idea. You said it's problematic. You said it's problematic to be the full-size candy bar people. No, it's not anymore. The problem now is we have deviated from the prime. Here's what I wanted to do. I had this really good idea that I was going to be, you know, I, I wasn't even going to make the kids climb the 22 steps yeah i was gonna sit up on the top step and i was gonna get a giant pvc pipe (laughs) that was about 22 steps long that's right and i was gonna mount it and when the kids got to the bottom of the steps i was gonna yell there she blows and throw a three musketeer bar into the pvc pipe and just let it go right right down into their bag in which case save them the trouble the fun size don't you think the fun size would be a lot more appropriate it's not heavy enough to go shooting down the chute like steven tell me if i'm wrong it would be like a water slide for candy bars yeah it's uh well speaking of costco it's like costco when they used to send up like uh you know they they count the money and then they send it up that little chute and then it goes into the accounting room but it's just going the opposite way it's going down so i'm i mean i think the kids would have a fun time now, you would have to uh, keep track of what kids show up, though, because yeah. I feel like kids would be like, hey, that's cool. I'm going to go back and get another one. I think what I would do is, too, I could put a skeleton or something cool at the bottom and make it look like the the candy was coming right out of the middle of the skeleton, like flying right at them. Okay. Just stay right there. 
wait while I uh, let a uh, full-size Snicker bar come down the Did you the, see this uh, idea steps. on TikTok or something? No. No. I came up with this idea a couple Steve, years ago. This is just his brain. <laughs> yeah. But I, isn't that a great idea? Like, I yeah. even thought, could we automate it where they push a button? Yeah. And the candy bar comes by itself. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You Wonka-like. Totally. You should work on that. And then, but my problem with the whole thing, the whole scenario gets thrown by the idea. And other listeners, you're free to copy this concept. Oh, I'm you haven't gonna, trademarked it. Not going to trademark it. It's for the greater good. Yeah. But... Uh, my my other idea was the problem with it is that our own kids are trick or treating and I don't want to miss out on that. Mm-hmm. So how can I sit on the porch, like basically with a giant Pez dispenser distributing full size candy bars, <laughs> w- and miss out on my own kids going door to door picking up bite sized candies from other people? Uh, that is a dilemma. Yeah. You know the only reason I bought those full size candy bars to begin with was because when I was little. Like, growing up in Park Rose, I never got full-size candy bars. We would, like, once we got old enough to have cars or find somebody who could drive us, we would drive over to Reed College Place over in southeast Portland because the word had gotten around town that that's where they give out the full-size candy bars. Oh, yeah. That was a status thing. So for me, like, buying the full-size bar was like, like, I was like, oh, we're making it. We're making it. Right. And so that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't mind if a van pulls up in the neighborhood yeah. and a bunch of kids come climbing out of the van and scrambling up the stairs towards the full-size candy bar. I don't mind that. Yeah. I'll be that guy. You're going right? to be the guy shooting it at guy. them at full speed once you know? they, uh, they give you the signal that they're ready to receive I'm, it. I'm telling you right now, mm-hmm. there are kids in our neighborhood who drive by our house 364 days a year and they go... Hey, I got a full-size Snicker bar at that place. That whatever that candy bar costs, I'm reaping benefits year-round from that. With kids going, oh, I love that place. I love that guy who lives at that place. That guy's shooting like he's got the biggest, you know, spitwad machine in the city, and he's shooting Snicker bars at kids that are coming by the house. I like that house, but he just hit me with the baby Ruth in the eyeball last year. I don't know. Maybe but the worst, it. the bad thing, the and here's the thing: someone always ruins it. We had, three years ago, we had full-size candy bars. We put the sign out, take two. And I'm talking full-size peanut butter cups, full-size Butterfingers, full-size Baby Ruth's. We had them all, okay, up on the porch for the taking. Uh And I don't even mind if a kid comes up, gets two candy bars, leaves, go to other houses, and then on the way back by, he goes, I'm going to go by and get another two. I don't even mind that. Yeah. Come and get it, okay? I'm just incredulous right now, staring. Right. We're doing an entire okay. segment but on candy. Here's what okay, I do go mind. Go on. Here's what I do mind. Yeah. Uh, late in the evening, about 9.30, yeah. we got an alert on our video system. Mm-hmm. And by the way, these kids all have to know they're being recorded <laughs> as they come up, and I can hear their conversations, <laughs> and they're phenomenal. Yeah. The kids are talking about they're having moral discussions on the on the porch yes. about whether or not there's a morality involved in taking more than two, and you have siblings correcting other siblings taking candy bars back out of their bags, putting them <laughs> yeah. back into We've the thing. That. Yeah, like no, you're only supposed to take two. Put uh-huh. that one back. Yeah, you know, and so you really do get to know you get to, you get like this 
sociological experiment. Totally, okay, it's not yes. the marshmallow experiment, but yeah. it's close. And often with no parents, because no yeah. parent in their right mind is climbing yeah. the 22 steps. So you get older sibling turning to younger, younger sibling going, hey, that's not right, put one of those back, okay, which is awesome. And it makes me want to hunt those kids down and be like, take all you want, right? <laughs> okay. You know, you passed. Charlie, it's yours. The factory is yours, right? <laughs> and so, Charlie, my boy. No, but in oh, the wow. end, in the end, 9.30 at night, Yeah. here comes some crappy little sedan, okay? Crappy little economy car pulls up. Parent, grown man, gets out of it, comes up the steps by himself, and attempts to steal all of the candy bars. Yeah. He's not stealing from me. Yeah, I remember that. He's stealing from the kids who are going to come after him, who don't get anything. So I get the alert. Immediately on my phone, I get an image of this guy who's on the porch, who's on a knee, trying to take all the candy bars. And so I go to the front door, I open it, and I'm about to tell him, like, hey, just take a couple of candy bars. I don't mind that you don't have a costume on. I don't mind that you're, like, 40 years old. Just take a couple of candy bars. But he's so spooked that he almost jumps off the 20 steps. Like, he took, I think, only one or two steps <laughs> down the steps. as he And he's scattering candy bars everywhere, like a bank robber running out of the bank with $100 bills floating in the air. And he runs to his car, and I'm like, hey, happy Halloween. And then I cross my mind. I go, gosh, I, I'm glad he didn't fall. He probably would have sued me. Yeah. Would have right. been one of those lawsuits. Yeah. So I'm almost going to put a disclaimer. If you're an adult and you've climbed 22 steps, just don't take them all. Yeah. If you don't have a costume on, don't take them all because you're not stealing from me. You're stealing from the five-year-old who's about to come around the corner is not going to get anything. Your, Maybe I, we should your ideas ahead. are great. Sorry, Anna. Your ideas are great, but I feel like people shouldn't have to sign a waiver to come to your house and trick-or-treat. Like, that... <laughs> That shouldn't be. Well, they the might if they're gonna lose an eye. Well, that's what I'm saying. No. Like, I feel like your ideas, good ideas in in theory, John. But I don't know. It's gonna be hard to execute. Uh, here, how about this? How about I dress like Willy Wonka too when I have that big shoot and I'm the candy bars are flying down there and I yell, Charlie, my boy, it's yours. I love that scene. All right, leave it here. You got the B F T. This is like the conversation we had about the grizzly bears, and then people started calling in because they had opinions on how you get away from a bear. Oh, are they calling in? Yeah, people are calling in, but I um, I actually think uh, we should talk some sports here in this <laughs> segment. Uh, Cam in Eugene wants to talk about Oregon against Washington. Cam, what do you got? John, Anna, thanks for taking the call. I uh, hope you had a good weekend. Um, yeah, I called to talk about the Ducks and, and their big game this weekend, probably the biggest game all season yeah. until the conference title if we make it that far. Uh, it's been a fun season. I've been excited watching Dan Landing put together the program and make progress. It's been a slow burn for me as a fan because I'm just a little slow to warm up to any coach after the last three guys, honestly. Uh, the Miami game felt good last weekend. I'm not going to say that any other kind of way. It felt really good to see that happen to, to somebody who ran out of town on us and uh, never really played a really brilliant, inspirational form of football coming from being a fan of the Chip Kelly era. I think we've seen um, the people, some people that are real bright upstairs and some people that are, we'll quote uh, Shel Silverstein, uh, there's a light on in the attic or, or maybe not with <laughs> some of these coaches. So, uh but moving on to the point, 
the game this Saturday, I'm a little confused seeing the line in Washington's favor because looking at the advanced stats, Oregon has the better offense. Oregon has the better defense. And I think we're coming for a, uh, a return of the Jedi moment this Saturday, the moment when Luke stumbles into the chamber and the Emperor tells him that the battle station, the Death Star, is actually fully operational. I think what's been hiding out in Eugene and what's going to be unveiled to the world this Saturday is, is a fully operational SEC defense living in the Pacific Northwest. And I think that's going to be the big story of the game is we've got two great Pac-12 teams, two great offenses, two teams filled with athletes, and one SEC-style defense between the two of them. And I think that's what's going to be the difference. What do you think? Well, I, I think... Uh... It is pointless to resist. I love that you're drawing Star Wars metaphors. I think I'm not ready to make a pick in this game yet, but is it possible these two teams could be playing twice? Is a question that John Wilner raised in the last uh, hour, I guess about a half hour ago. He talked about his pick for the Pac-12 title game, and he said, could we see a rematch? Are these the two best two teams in the Pac-12 conference? Is there a gap after Oregon and Washington? Now, you, you can make an argument that two teams from the Pac-12 should be in the playoff with a straight face if one of these teams can get to the end of the season undefeated and the other team has a respectable loss in their meeting. And so it's a one-loss team against an undefeated team. Alabama and Georgia did this twice. The SEC on two occasions in the last nine years got two teams into the college football playoff. One time, they did not meet. They did not play because they didn't play in the regular season, and they didn't play each other in the conference championship game. The other time, Georgia and Alabama played. It was a number one against a number three. They met in the conference title game as the only meeting that season, and the number three team upset the number one team. And the College Football Playoff Selection Committee said, all right, we'd like to see these teams play again and put them both in the playoff. Is it possible that they not only would play a rematch, is it possible that they're both playoff teams? I don't know. I think we're going to learn something when we see them play on Saturday. Michael is in Eugene. Michael, what do you got? John, I'm not cheating uh, with Wilner's hypothesis. I've actually been thinking about this for a couple weeks. And to your question, I've been doing this a while. I feel like I know what I'm looking at. And the dogs and the ducks, they are different than the others. Of course, it's not even Halloween, but they just look cleaner. All of the stats point that these are the two best teams. And, yeah, I'm thinking in my head, is it better if we're good enough to beat Washington twice, obviously we're in the playoffs. But if the Ducks went up there and stumbled and it was close, let's say Washington holds the line and they're a two-and-a-half-point favorite, I think, is the last I saw. It started at three. The line is coming down. Yeah. Yeah, you and got ten the seconds Ducks here. you got to wrap. Take care of it. No, but, yeah, but the Ducks take care of the title game. Yeah, leave it here. Anna is here and ready for what should be a riveting 5 at 5. We're going to lead you right into Monday Night Football with this. So you're kind of like Hank Williams Jr. <laughs> singing, are you ready for some football? 
Uh-huh, just but, like that. But you're doing the five at five. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Did they have... They should bring Hank back. <laughs> what? I'm not... Is he still alive? Uh, you gave me that look. I thought he got <laughs> canceled or something. Did oh. he get canceled? <laughs> well... Is he either canceled or... Oh, that's a new game. Canceled uh, or dead? Canceled or... Wait, no, we... Not dead. We've played that game, haven't we? Oh, no, we just played Are They Dead? Yeah. Are they... Is this person yeah. alive? Yeah. Yeah. Well... So charming. <laughs> That's what we do here. Full of class. We here. try to keep track of who's alive, who's dead, all that, uh, all that important stuff. Um, we're gonna do the five at five. Then we're gonna lead you into football. You ready? Yeah. All right. Here it is, Anna's five at five. The five at five. Anna's number one story is. Did the Buffalo Bills screw up by not in arriving in London until Friday morning for their Sunday game against the Jacksonville Whoops. Jaguars? So they're talking about Buffalo's offense and how lethargic it looked as it began its 25-20 to 20 loss to Jacksonville. Uh, they've kind of been discussing this because Jacksonville... Spent almost two weeks in London with back-to-back games in the United Kingdom. Now, mind you, London is five hours ahead of New York. So, they've been talking. I wonder if this uh, affected the performance, and they're, they're talking about it. It's really interesting to watch the Jaguars, because most NFL teams play, like, a game every now and then in Europe. You know, you 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 look at like Seattle or San Francisco or some of these teams. They, you know, they play three or four times yeah. in Europe. Okay, and the Jaguars are going on their eleventh game in London. You know, they I get it. They're on the Eastern Seaboard, sure, but Jacksonville likes to play over there. Hmm. Well, maybe it was to their advantage. To their advantage, but. Are they are they moving the franchise there? Well, I was going to ask you that. Is there ever going to be a time when there's an NFL team over in Europe? I don't think so. But what Jacksonville if, was the is the first to play two games in Europe in the same season. What about like the NBA? I don't think so. Like I just think there's a there's a logistical. I think it'd be more likely in the NFL, but there's a logistical problem with you know teams going over there and how long can you stay over there and you can only play one game, like you know. A little bit of a problem there with the logistics, I would think. What about Oregon State or Washington State? <laughs> this is like Larry Scott's China initiative. You know, Larry Scott tried to get all the teams playing over there and didn't work out. And it it, it was a disaster. For college teams, it's a disaster, I think. But that's just me. Number two. It's so weird to see headlines that say the Milwaukee Bucks, Damian Lillard, but that's what he is now. And he's calling out the Blazers while addressing oh his initial desire for a trade to the Heat. He says he's happy in Milwaukee, but it sounds like he might be holding a grudge. What do you mean? He says that he didn't think it was a secret that Miami's where he wanted to go. And that it was more of a thing when this conversation even started. It was like, we're not going to be able to build this team out will help you get to where you want to go. And that was where I wanted to go. This is... The the, the Trailblazers are not his agent. You know? And I get it. So, like, he's doing some interviews. 
some revisionist history going on here. We get it. You wanted to go to Miami. That's cool if it would have worked out for the Blazers. They got a better trade offer from Milwaukee. They did what was best for them. There's nothing in the collective bargaining agreement that says that the Blazers needed to deliver him to his chosen place. It's called a trade. It's not a draft. It's not free agency. It's called a trade. But maybe that's what they told him, though. Maybe that's what they said is, we'll help you get to where you want to go. Well, they can help. They can try. No guarantee. You know what he could have done? He could have not signed that contract extension with the Blazers. He would have been a free agent. Does it matter if they? Yeah. Does it matter if they say they're going to try and then they don't actually try? Matter in terms of what? Because because Dame wanted to go there, right? And reportedly the Blazers said, "Yeah, we'll try to get you to Miami," but they never actually reached out to Miami by all reports. I've heard that numerous times. It's been reported that they never talked to Miami, so they actually didn't really try to get him to Miami. I don't know. But they reportedly promised that they're like, yeah, we're going to try to get you Miami. Does lying matter? I don't, I, I, like, I don't know if that's lying, though. I don't know if that's lying. But, you know, it, it, some of this is, hey, we could try to get you where you want to go. But there's no guarantee. He's under contract. He's not a free agent. I just think this is petty. But it also was reported that the Blazers asked for more than what the Heat were offering. Which is within their right. You know, again. Does it matter to you, Stephen? No, not like at it all. Kinda mat- no, not at all. No. Like, it kind of matters to me. Why does it matter to you? Because it's sort of like a, you know, do the noble thing. Like, if you're saying you're going to try to help, then follow through. With he that. didn't need to sign the contract extension. <laughs> but he obviously was. He did it because it was more money for him. It wasn't the noble thing that he did there. Like, I feel bad for Dame because it seems like he really liked Portland, but at the same time, like, I'm a Blazer fan, so I just wanted the Blazers to get as much back as possible, and Miami wasn't that destination. So, for me, like, I don't care that they didn't negotiate with Miami because they didn't have the assets that I wanted. I just, I don't, I don't like a system in which the players can say, it's just a business, it's not personal, I'm signing with another team, it's free agency. I'm not taking less money to come to a smaller market. It's free agency. Everyone understands that. But then the play, then the teams go, we've got an asset. We're going to do what's best for us. We're going to trade you. And the player goes, well, you didn't get me to my preferred destination. Yeah, but it's just the aspect that it makes me a little uncomfortable that if he was truly under the, pre- the impression from the Blazers, whoever it was that told them, him, that, hey, we're not going to be able to build this team out. We'll help you get to where you want to go. That that was his impression. That I can see why, you know, he'd have some feelings about that. Okay. Show business, not show friends. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. That's what the money's for. Okay? Don Draper. I'll say it like Don Draper did. That's what the money's for. If he needs to hear it, he can tune into the show, and we can go, hey, you're making half a million dollars a game. Be happy. Go find happiness in Milwaukee, okay? Like, you know, it's sad that it didn't work out here. You had a nice run. Moment was nice. It's over now. Blazer fans are moving on. Scoot Henderson, guess what, Scoot? It'll end for you, too, someday. Make the best of it here, okay? That's my life coaching moment for NBA millionaires. Now you're going to go smoke a cigarette and uh, drink a whiskey. Make the most of it. Number three, Colorado star Travis Hunter returned to practice for the first time since that gnarly injury to his kidney, ouch, uh, against Colorado State. 
Um, Coach Prime has said that he would like Hunter to be out until the Buffalo's bye week, but so far he has not been ruled out in uh, the upcoming game against Stanford. Okay. So we shall see. He's back in practice, though. Okay. I like to see Travis Hunter healthy and on the field. I think he's a great kid. I think he's a really good interview. I think he's got good perspective. He didn't hold a grudge. Somebody cheap-shotted him and he didn't hold a grudge. I, I can get behind that guy. Number four. Uh, Major League Baseball fans are making fun of the Dodgers' uh, left fielder, David Peralta. So they had this terrible loss to the Arizona Diamondbacks to open up the postseason. They lost 11-3. to uh, Clayton Kershaw, not a good night uh, pitching. And then David Peralta hits a double, gets on second base, and then does this like weird happy dance as the team is down by nine. Mm-hmm. So he's being royally made fun of. They were not impressed with that celebration. What say you about that? Uh, I, I, I think there's a lot of individual celebrating that's going on out there that is problematic. You know, it, people are getting criticized for. I would much prefer to see a player not celebrating and trying to rub it in and make it about themselves, especially when they're down significantly in the game. But that's not the era we're in. And I don't want to sound like an old man on my lawn, shaking my fist at kids trying to trick or treat. So I'm just going to say this. Individual expression is great. Not a great look. Oh, number five. Got to do this fast. Will Ferrell DJs at a frat house. Sigma Alpha U at USC. Uh, by the way, his kid goes there now, so love he's that. presumably in the fraternity. He's going old school in reality. Love Ron Burgundy DJing. Good for them. Get him on the sideline at a football game, though. Can we do that? All right, the bald-faced truth, not here for a long time, just a good time.